it's it's already significantly complex with an enormous number of confounding variables. And then adding in inadequate data or misleading data. Welcome back to the BMJ podcast. In these public health discussions, we've been looking mainly at the response in the US and the UK, the two countries with the highest death tolls in this pandemic. I mentioned death tolls there, but that implies accurate, honest counting. Um, And can we turn those tolls into rates so that we can compare internationally? That's what we're going to be discussing today. Joining me in these podcasts, as always, are Sridhar Venkatapuram, Associate Professor of Global Health and Philosophy at King's College London. Sridhar, welcome back. Thank you. Kathleen Bakinski, who's Assistant Professor of Public Health at Muhlenberg College. Kathleen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Martin McKee, Professor of European Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hi, Martin. Hi, thank you. Well, welcome back all. Um, Kathleen, I thought maybe we could start with you this week because uh, I've seen some stories from the US about um, the data on COVID rates and deaths being collected and published and um, potentially some manipulation or or suppression of data going on, uh, which is obviously concerning. Um, What's going on? Uh, Could you tell us about about the state of things? Uh, Certainly. And and this information comes from both uh, local reporting and then most recently, uh, The Atlantic, which is a national magazine in the United States, has published several articles um, on national level data as well as state level data. And the essential problem seems to be that both the CDC, which is the uh, national public health agency in the United States, as well as um, several state health departments seem to be mixing the results of both viral and antibody tests. And the reason this is a big problem in the data is that these are two very different kinds of tests that reveal different kinds of information. So a viral test or or a diagnostic test um, is a test usually done with a nasal swab or or with saliva to determine if somebody currently has uh, COVID-19, is currently infected. And um, an antibody test, on the other hand, is a test to determine whether somebody's developed antibodies, in other words, whether they had been previously uh, infected with COVID-19. So these are two very different kinds of information. Uh, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it seems that both um, some of the federal level data in the United States, as well as state level data coming from, I believe, Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, and, and several other states are effectively mixing these test results together. And the reason that's a big problem is that uh, the information about testing has been key to determining whether and how and when uh, states should be reopening. And so if these uh, data are getting mixed up together, um, it's it's not possible to accurately interpret that information. And it's possible that some states are making decisions about reopening based on flawed data. And that that comparison between um, states is, is obviously as well important to, to understand how um, the virus is moving around the country. Yes, and so it it 
it makes it really hard to be able to both make a decision within a state and also for different states who are, you know, trying to share their data and, and are certainly sharing borders and trying to, to cooperate. Um, it's very uh, challenging to compare data if the, the antibody tests and the viral tests aren't separated out. Um, and another particular aspect of this that's of great interest is that one of the benchmarks um, that's been used and is certainly uh, recommended by the World Health Organization as well. Um, the advice has been to hold off on initiating reopening until the percentage of uh, COVID-19 tests that are positive uh, remain under 5% under 14 days. So you actually want a lower percent of tests coming back positive because that tells you you're doing enough tests. If you have a high percentage of positive tests, that means you're probably not testing enough people. Maybe you're only testing the people who have um, more severe symptoms or, or more clearly mm. um, are, are currently infected with COVID-19. And so the, the other problem with mixing together um, viral and antibody tests is that it might falsely push that number down uh, and make it look like you've got that number of positive tests low enough to begin reopening when in fact that may not be the case. And um, Martin, we had problems with testing and, and that surveillance in the UK, but we now seem to have some better data about uh, potentially what the infection rate at the moment is and, and how many people have been infected overall. Um, and then combining that with some better data about actually the mortality rate, um, we're beginning to get a better picture over here, um, but there's still been some shenanigans, shall we say, about, about that data. Comparisons daily. Yes, that's right. Uh, then, as it became clear that uh, the number of cases of in the UK was rising been. above that of uh, the second, what, what then became the second highest number of cases in Europe and Italy, uh, it decided to stop publishing them. And it uh, really justified this by referring to uh, an article written by Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, uh, who had raised concerns about using mortality numbers for international comparisons in if you were trying to say well one country is a little bit ahead of the other or one is a little bit below he was criticizing the concept of league tables and uh, that was used that was quote he was quoted by the prime minister in the house of commons as why we should not be doing any international comparisons and then he wrote back to say well that wasn't what he was saying of course whenever you're comparing a country that has had between 30 and 60,000 deaths and another country that has had 30 deaths in total of course you can make a comparison uh, so we are in a bit of a difficulty there then we have the difficulty with the actual numbers because even with the increased uh, the widening definition including people in care homes we're up to about 33 35,000 deaths in the UK but our we can look in addition at the excess mortality, the number of deaths above what we would expect for the time of year. And the Financial Times, Chris Giles and others in the Financial Times have been doing a very good job on that. And that suggests that the true number that we can attribute directly and indirectly to COVID is about double that, around 60, 62, 65,000. Yeah, so 
we, we're building up a picture, as you say, but it's still there is still some uncertainty. Now, Sridhar, if we come to you, outside of uh, the US and the UK, one of the places where there seems to be very few cases and, and potentially deaths from, from COVID is uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And that's perhaps uh, unexpected, um, given they're still developing health systems and things. Um is that, uh, do we know if that's a case of um, problems with the data that um, in the sort of same way as uh, Martin and Kathleen uh, described there? Or, or, or can we be fairly confident that um, we're seeing uh, uh, an accurate picture? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, this question about whether COVID epidemic will somehow sidestep LMICs, uh, both in Sub-Saharan Africa, but also remember that Latin America, we often seem to miss out because it's somehow in the American region, uh, is also a really important region in the world uh, to think about uh, in terms of how this impact will be. So one of the things that we need to remember is that the spread of COVID-19 around the world started in China, and it didn't uh, just happen in a geographical westward slowly direction. What it did is that the infection spread uh, on airplane routes to major urban centers around the world. So you would see uh, first uh, in Southeast Asia and then major European countries. So if we follow the terrific work that's been done on genoming sequencing and actually you know sequencing all the different strains around the world, you'll see these extraordinary patterns that sort of map onto international air flight patterns. Why this is important is that it has shown us that there's been different kinds of waves that are happening or that happened and that the least developed countries have tended to be the ones that have been affected last. And so on the one hand, if you take a time slice of it and say right now, if we look at the world, this shows that uh, sort of many of the low and developing country, low income countries are not, uh, have high numbers and therefore that must mean that they are not affected. So two, at least two or three different points would warn against us making that kind of conclusion. One is that, so we know that the virus is spreading from, you know, first went to major cities, major international flight centers, and then spreading to sub uh, cities and then to other regions. So there's a question of time. The second thing is that, you know, we see in epidemics, um, Usually when we thought of an outbreak or infectious epidemic, we thought that, you know, many people thought that this was going to be in some developing country. And usually in Ebola, for example, it happens in some rural area and then it takes days and weeks and no one really notices until it gets to a big town and then there's been government responses. In this one, what is very significant is that the spread of infections in many low and middle income countries came from the elites. And I use that word in, in sort of a specific way, which is that it came through international travelers and those people who could afford international flights and had the ability to get clearances for international flights. Then that means that the group that was first affected was that group. And so we are seeing different, so in terms of community transmission spreads, uh, it'll take time for those infections to uh, sort of spread across the population, particularly the majority of the population that is poor, but also you have to say socially distant from the elites anyway. So that's one question. But I think that there is still a really big question about 
what do, what is the relationship between poverty and this spread of infections? And we uh, normally assume that poverty and infectious diseases go together. But from our previous experiences, we know that it takes time for infections that are coming from the outside to get to the lower sections and then they settle there. And that's when the devastation sort of happens over a longer period of time. So that combined with the third point, which is that there isn't any capacity or a sufficient capacity for testing to access the tests, to process the tests. Um, and so that is a really big issue uh, for many uh, low and middle income countries, particularly low income countries. Um, and so what we're seeing is a very limited capacity and then also a selective testing. And so this is where the politics and the epidemiology start to merge. Um, and so I don't want to take up more time, but I want to say that just as there's been politics in the United States regarding testing and data, there's also been politics in many other countries. So, for example, just as a case, in Uganda, most of the testing has been done at the national borders on truck drivers. And so those people have been identified as the kind of you know, external threat. And therefore, there's now miles long of trucks that are where people get tested and then they have to wait for the results, which might take a couple of days. And then when it comes to data, very recently, the Ugandan president has said, we're going to remove all the foreign truck drivers uh, data from our national statistics because they don't, they should belong to the country that they come from. So it's all of those things that are coming into play in terms of why we're seeing the kinds of statistics that we're seeing from lower income countries. That's really interesting. Um, I suppose all of this, um, it might sound like it's, it's a fairly high level public health thing that um, you know will matter down the line. But actually in this moment, um, it's still important to really get a handle on this data to allow us to, to see what's being effective in potentially reducing the spread of, of the virus. Um, so those international comparisons um, based on, on good data are sort of fundamental to our, our, our tackling of this. You're absolutely right. And it is really rather unfortunate that it has been so difficult to get international coordination of the, uh, the data. I mean, I'm looking particularly at Europe, but of course, um, Kathleen will comment on the challenges in the United States. I, one, I think what we're particularly interested in is getting the excess all-cause mortality I mentioned earlier, because that overcomes a number of the definitional problems that we have at the minute. We do know that as we look across Europe and we compare the number of the official number of COVID deaths to the excess all-cause mortality, you get very different figures. So in countries like Belgium, for example, it's about the COVID deaths are about 94% of the excess. In the United Kingdom, they're about 50% of the excess and, and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, even where we do have the data, often we're waiting quite a long time for it to be brought together. And in some countries, like in Germany, which does very well in many other respects, we only have it for a number of the 16 land. And uh, so that is is unfortunate that we haven't been able to get that to be into much, much closer to real time. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that. I think one of the challenges when we're trying to make these international comparisons is we're obviously trying to learn lessons, but what isn't isn't working across countries. Um, and there's just an incredibly complex 
mix of factors that epidemiologists are already trying to tease out, um, be it population density, age structure, wealth, you know, the use of masks versus lack of masks, um, the level of social distancing policies. Uh, it's, it's already significantly complex with an enormous number of confounding variables. And then adding in inadequate data or misleading data, um, different approaches to collecting data, uh, it's just an enormous challenge when we're thinking about how do we collaborate to learn lessons if we don't have some kind of consistency in the way that we can even make these comparisons. So I think this is going to be an enormous challenge ahead if we want to get as accurate an understanding as we can about what is and isn't working. We, we are going to have to prioritize uh, much more consistent data uh, across countries and within countries as well. What I want to also add to this is that aside from uh, international comparisons being politically uh, complicated or difficult for some national leaders because they might not look uh, like they're doing very well and their leadership is questioned, there is also a very important reason why those international comparisons have to be done, which is that if you only look at one country or a sample of one to see what is working and what is not, you're not going to get uh, the same answers as if you are able to look across countries. So we have, uh, you know, the number of official countries in the WHO, I think, is 197, but unofficially, I think it's 223. But to understand basic questions like, did border closures have an impact on the spread of infections or mortality requires us to be able to compare across countries? Or did uh, a variety of other, whether timing of different policies makes any difference across countries? And so when you don't do international comparisons, you're shutting down all that kinds of uh, you know, sort of analysis and knowledge that could actually help us in our second waves or many other waves, as well as in future epidemics. But it allows people to, or it allows countries to say, we did all the right things and therefore it's all just sort of sub-national uh, issues that are at play, when actually it could be quite a significantly fruitful and productive thing to do to look at international comparisons. Yes. Um, can I pick up on this issue of, of uh, subnational comparisons? There's a huge opportunity to do much more there. Uh, I've been looking in particular at Italy, and it is, uh, like Europe, a natural experiment. We What we've seen is the ability of different regions to pursue different policies. Uh, particularly comparing Veneto and uh, Lombardy, uh, but also their ability to confine the epidemic to a small number of regions in the north of the country and with very limited spread elsewhere. And that contrasts with, for example, the situation in the United Kingdom, where we have a much more generalised epidemic. Uh, but that takes us into all sorts of interesting issues around the uh, extent to which different regional authorities have the autonomy to do different things and take actions. Uh, which is, they have much more in, in decentralised countries like Spain or Italy compared to the UK, with the exception of the four nations, of course. Could I add um, also that it brought to mind when uh, Kathleen was speaking, but also, as just Martin has said, is that we have been speaking about countries as one unit, but actually 
what's happening here is that the domestic federalist structure of countries is also significantly impacting the variation of spread of pandemic across the country, but also within. So in Canada, the question about Quebec and how Quebec is dealing with the pandemic uh, is very much about the federal structure and how the different states in the United States are dealing with, and then the variation is about the federal structure. And in India, for example, where the state of Kerala is doing significantly better than other states is because of the kinds of politics and issues around the federal structure. So I think you will see that we can't just look at sort of the national unit, but we also have to pay quite a lot of attention to the way that states, uh, you know, how nations or national states um, are, you know, sort of deal with their federal structure and what are the different kinds of politics uh, in the sub-national level and how much that impacts the way that data is collected and analyzed and the decisions that are being made uh, and the way that it's impacting people's lives and mortality, deaths um, in different countries. I couldn't agree more. And I, I certainly think going back to the U.S. perspective, um, just looking at the national level data can very much mask um, the different dynamics going on at, at, within the states and even at more local levels. Um, the national numbers, for instance, look hugely different um, if you take out the New York City, uh, New Jersey, sort of Connecticut region, um, which was, was particularly hard hit, um, but has had more of a decline in the last few weeks. And then there are other states that are seeing much more of an increase. And what ends up happening uh, at a national level is that when you combine all of that data, it ends up sort of looking like a plateau, but instead that's actually masking declines in some areas and increases in others. And the, the other point that I think um, is quite striking in the United States as well is given what a patchwork of policies we have across states, um, there's a resulting movement of people that uh, is also going to shape the outcome uh, in different areas. So as a particular example, uh, Georgia is a state that uh, reopened quite a few businesses recently, including uh, restaurants and, and nail salons and bars and so forth. Uh, and cell phone data have shown that after that decision uh, was made in Georgia, there were more than 60,000 extra visit visitors who started arriving from neighboring states to take, advantages, uh, take advantage of the businesses that had reopened in Georgia, but not in their state. Uh, so we know that there's also effects of this patchwork of policies on the movement of people. And so being sure that we're getting data that's accurately accounting for that as well, and those, those very specific state and local dynamics, I think is going to be very important. We started this talking about um, the fact that that some states were uh, manipulating potentially or messing up data um, in a way that that's that's not very helpful to all of the things that we've been talking about here. Um, was it ever thus, um, or is COVID because of the the speed of things and uh, the the political nature of it? Is is COVID worse, do you think, than um, the usual data collection that, that goes on? So the comparison of countries allowing health, uh, according to health data, has always been controversial. Um, particularly, I believe, uh, if you go back to the World Health Report, 
Uh, and I think it was the 2000 report. That was the first time that uh, countries were ranked according to the burden of disease in their countries using a new measure called the disability adjusted life year was hugely controversial because it sort of put to the world the status of the countries according to the health of their populations. And it was profoundly political and has that measure has been very political and also criticized for being inaccurate. But nevertheless, it was the first time that countries were ranked and people and countries and national leaders don't like to be either number two or number 190. Um, and so I think that's always been controversial. The thing about infectious diseases is that it's been a really controversial issue since the founding of the United Nations and also the League of Nations and any time countries and the great empires were trying to coordinate some sort of mechanism or action in order to deal with infectious diseases. It's always been uh, understood that infectious disease outbreaks in countries threaten the mobility of, uh, of travelers across national borders as well as trade. And so there's been this constant worry about any kind of declaration about an outbreak or the spread of infections would uh, actually you know, directly impact trade and, and travel. And this is essentially the core of the debate between China and WHO and when it should have said what. Um, was this concern that, uh, you know, was that, you know, if you announce it, then this is going to have significant impact. And how should you announce it? And what should you say? This is the core of the international health regulations in order to protect countries from any kind of negative consequences by reporting outbreaks. Um, but what the international health regulations did not uh, sort of do was that they've tried to protect countries from targeted closures. That is that if you start closing one country's borders because they have an outbreak, that is sort of considered to be against international health regulations. But what the regulations don't do is speak at all about what happens when a country closes its borders to any foreigners and how when the whole world closes their borders. So there's a really uh, gray, ambiguous area here uh, in that sort of question. I sort of, I, I agree that, you know, it was, it was ever thus in many ways. And I guess I'm certainly thinking back specifically uh, to SARS in 2003 and enormous criticisms there about the accuracy and, and speed with which data were shared. I guess two things that strike me as particularly challenging and perhaps at least somewhat new now um, at least from a U.S. perspective, is that I don't think I've seen um, this kind of mixing of data or this sort of level of inaccuracy at the CDC level before. Um, the recent reports about the mixing of, of antibody and viral data, for example, um, at the CDC level is a sort of um, kind of fundamental error uh, that I don't think um, I've seen in previous uh uh, CDC data collection in, in either infectious disease or, or other kinds of uh, outbreaks. And then the other thing that is perhaps particularly challenging now, um, which is sort of, a, I guess, a blessing and the curse, is a, the speed with which data is coming out in, in particular preprints, which um, are essentially uh, the publication of preliminary data that has not yet gone through peer review. And I think 
obviously today with the, the speed with which information can travel, um, there's a huge amount of, of advantage to that in terms of trying to, trying to quickly share information as much as possible in the context of a new virus. But I'm also concerned to see that um, there's all sorts of preprints that really haven't gone through proper peer review that are sort of getting reported on as if uh, they are sort of fully vetted, um, fully accurate information. We've seen headlines, for example, in the United States um, based on a serologic survey in Santa Clara, California, um, that was effectively a preprint that was later shown to have enormous flaws, but nonetheless um, received major headlines and shaped um, policy conversations. And so I think that is a, a sort of accelerating challenge given our technology and given the advantages of our technology. Um, it's certainly a good thing to, to share preliminary data, but I think we also need to tread with a little more caution in terms of vetting some of that data and in terms of both reporting on it and deciding when it's ready to, to be used to actually inform policy decisions. Mm. And Martin, do you want to come in here? Yes, well, of course, it, it was ever thus in some ways. And um, those of us who are old enough to remember the Soviet Union recall how in the 1980s there was a, a, a suppression of data that demonstrated that the country was failing. It's very difficult to uh, reflect on this now to think that there was a time in the 1980s when many people in the West thought that the Soviet Union was ascendant uh, because of its military prowess. But in fact, it was a time that its health statistics were deteriorating rapidly. And that was the first indication uh, that Mary Feshbach and uh, Nick Eberstadt and others drew attention to this to show that this was a, a failing state. And I think that's a warning because we've watched with some alarm the pressure that's been coming on CDC to change definitions and uh, so on. And as you've already described, the manipulation of data in, in some states, the pressure of, on the epidemiologists in Florida, for example. And uh, that historically has not been a good sign. It does indicate that there is something fundamentally problematic. There are other countries like uh, in, in the European region, Turkmenistan, that has uh, suppressed episode, um, outbreaks of plague and so on in the 1990s. And of course, the 2005 revision of the international health regulations anticipated these problems because it allowed the WHO to use data from multiple sources rather than just depend on what a national government provided. There was a recognition that, that there was a strong incentive to cover up uh, infections when they had an economic impact. And as we, we come towards the end of this, I suppose uh, we have hinted about um, the US and, and the WHO, that sort of undermining of um, the big institutions that, that help bind some of that data and, and our policies. Uh, that's, that's a very worrying um, thing to start happening. Srida, you, you look at um, global health a lot. Is, is, is this concerning you just now? So I think our view of the WHO is both underestimated as well as over-exaggerated. And what I mean by that is that the WHO has had a significant role in uh, health policy making in the world, but for so far it has largely been uh, the most helpful or the most impactful in low and middle income countries where there might not be the infrastructure uh, and the expertise, and the WHO provides technical assistance on a variety of different topics. And so in that part, we have underestimated how much it actually 
exists in the world for many countries and has influence on it. We've over-exaggerated in actually thinking about what it actually does do and what it, uh, what it actually can do. So it's a profoundly, uh, if you look at the budget and if you look at the staffing and if you look at what the areas are that they are trying to work in, is that, um, their, for example, their data capacity is very minimal. In fact, uh, you know, over the years, the development of, for example, the DALI, if you look at it and where it happened, initially it happened within the WHO and then Christopher Murray took it all uh, to uh, University of Washington in Seattle and the Gates Foundation gave him, I think we're now in the 400 to $800 million worth of funding just to capture global health data or data across countries about burden of disease. The WHO has nowhere near a hundred million, even, I don't even know how many millions, if it's millions at all, in order to be able to capture data or to be able to analyze data. As far as I'm aware from my experience working there, there were a few number of people who were trying to just handle the, the data part of it. So we've completely over-exaggerated, I think, or overestimated what we think the WHO can do. In this COVID response, what you're seeing is a significant sharing out of the work that is needed in response, and the WHO is only one part of it. So, for example, in this uh, ACT accelerator or COVID tools accelerator, you will see that there's you know, different pillars. So one is vaccine, one is testing, one is PPE, and Gavi's vaccines, Global Fund is testing, and I think Unitaid is uh, therapeutics. So what you're seeing is sort of the uh, distribution of all this work across different agendas. So, you know, I, I, I see the WHO as a really important organization in the world. I think that it should be given as much uh, sort of support as we give the double, uh, as the World Bank or the IMF in, in their sort of capacity to analyze countries and to analyze issues. But the WHO is nowhere near those two organizations. And until now, the head of the WHO was never given at all, even near the attention that the statements of people who are running the IMF or the WHO or the World Bank are given. That's an interesting take. Thank you. Martin, if we, we go to you next, we're in the UK and the end of this year is going to be Brexit. So there's going to be a lack of cooperation at the European level um, going on. Uh, is there any um, any hope there? Is what's been going on to, to try and um, bolster that sort of pan-public health? Well, this is wrapped up in the wider issue of the UK's relationship with the European Union. There was an exchange of letters in the last few days between David Frost, the British negotiator, and Michel Barnier, the European uh, Union's negotiator, uh, which was uh, the British letter, I think it's fair to say, was not particularly helpful. And um, Michel Barnier had to uh, point out that, in fact, it was uh, the UK was rolling back on many of the commitments it had previously made. We need to look, in fact, not... we not as far ahead as the end of the year, because at the end of June, we do have to have a uh, significant agreement on areas like fisheries, where almost no progress has been made. And the UK needs to have demonstrated that it has put in place the physical infrastructure, has actually done things to implement what it committed to do on the border between Great Britain and the island of Ireland, but it seems to have done almost nothing 
And uh, so I think many of us are concerned that we are moving towards a no deal situation at the end of the year, potentially in the middle of a second wave of the pandemic. Uh, which would be catastrophic. Uh, some cynical people, and uh, I wouldn't like to say whether they're right or wrong, think that maybe the government feels it can get the disaster that would unfold, uh, could, could be blamed on COVID. That's a possibility. Uh, but it is deeply worrying because, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that the UK is really taking this terribly seriously at the minute. It was it eventually pulled out, uh, published its uh, draft legal text, which is almost entirely copied from the agreement between Canada and the uh, EU. But of course, Canada is a country that is quite far away and has quite different relationships. So let's see where we go. I think one of the problems is that just by sitting around the table with people, even if it's a Zoom table, you actually exchange ideas. And uh, the uh, House of Common Science and Technology Committee had a hearing today where it was asking about the UK's learning from other countries. And it wasn't a particularly encouraging experience, unfortunately. So I think that there are quite a lot of challenges before we can get this to work. And Kathleen, um, if we come back to the states at this point, it seems like the bit that that coordinates um, things between the states uh, is the federal government. And again, we've seen a lack of uh, will to take that role on. Um, so, so that coordination is missing there too. Yes, it's it's been very disheartening. I think um, on many levels here. I think, well, certainly there's been a long history in the United States of a sort of isolationist trend. And we've seen even before we got to COVID-19, um, the U.S. not always signing on board with other um, important uh, international collaborations to address issues such as climate change. And we're similarly seeing um, a reluctance to, to fully get on board with the, the World Health Organization as well. At the same time, we also have the, the sort of failures of uh, lacking a coordinated national response here. Um, and an, another sort of specific issue uh, to the United States is that we are coming up on um, a fall presidential election, uh, which will be in November 2020. Um, and so I think there's real concern of lack of coordination with other countries, lack of coordination at the national level and, and across states uh, within the United States, and the huge risk of just a further politicization of the data and our response uh, in the run-up to the presidential election coming up later this year. Well, that's somewhat a, a gloomy picture to to leave this on. So um, my final question will be, you know, we've seen that COVID seems to be changing a lot of things, as we've said, for, for the worse, but also some things um, for the better. In all of this, have you seen any more positive uh, international or subnational kind of um, cooperation going on? Uh, Kathleen, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I certainly think um, I've I've been encouraged to see a cooperation uh, amongst governors in the United States. There's been the formation of a number of sort of regional. Uh, collaborations uh, such as uh, Midwest, uh, Northeast, I believe the Northeastern governors who've now agreed to sort of share data and, and um, coordinate policy 
include uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, Delaware. Um, so I think even in the absence of um, consistent federal leadership, there's been uh, some really remarkable coordination among governors. Uh, and I think there's also been a lot of inspiring leadership from mayors and, and sort of local leaders. Um, so I think there's been a lot there to sort of take uh, inspiration from and to take um, some some level of hope from that uh, the advantage of this sort of patchwork um, is that even if one level of leadership is um, falling down, there's other levels of leadership that um, can sort of do as much as possible to coordinate. Mm. And Martin? I think the encouraging sign from a European perspective, although not obviously from a British perspective, has been that there is a much uh, greater determination, particularly led by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, to strengthen public health within the European Union, moving ahead with an increase in the budget. We need to remember that in the last uh, in the discussions on the current financial plan, there were some, and with the new commission, uh, there were some concerns about how well public health would even survive within that structure. Well, it has done so, but I think it will come out of this strengthened with a recognition that there is a need for stronger collaboration. But also, I think we're looking across the Atlantic very much as uh, at what Kathleen has said, in that you're finding these regional groupings of states that are acting in the absence of any meaningful engagement by the federal government. Mm. And uh, and Frida. So the two uh, most obvious examples of increased cooperation in response, one, I have to say, is that the EU leading the raising of funds for a global COVID response. And I think it's an extraordinary effort where uh, the EU, as well as the world's leading foundations and philanthropies, um, have come together and raised uh I don't, I, I forget right now, I think it's 8 billion euros on May 4th uh, towards this effort that was raised and committed. There's obviously going to be more money that's needed, but just that extraordinary effort in which they were able to do uh, all of that and continue to work on that, I think is, uh, is an important thing. I think it's also as important as Martin has pointed out to watch what Germany and France uh, as two people, particularly Germany, as it becomes essentially the de facto leader of global health and also perhaps uh, of, of the Western world and thinking about what uh, kinds of cooperation that it can motivate and lead. So I think there's much to be sort of uh, looked at in terms of the future around what they set and how they do it. The second thing is the extraordinary amount of academic uh, not only output, as say that's a different story, but the cooperation that's happening, not only in terms of sharing of data, but people working across universities and as well as disciplines, as well as countries trying to work in their own particular uh, question and sort of sharing their information and sharing whatever resources that they have to work together, but also the extraordinary amount of open learning that is now available. So people are making whatever webinars and seminars that they are putting up in order to address with this issue that's open to people in, in the world. So people that, you know, usually when you have 10 or 20 people suddenly have hundreds of people from different parts of the world, I think is really important. Particularly, it makes uh, all this knowledge accessible to people in low and middle income countries. Um, and so I think that's been something that's really 
worthwhile. The last thing that I'm sort of still unsure about, and I'm hoping it might get better, is just the cooperation among various kinds of civil society groups across countries. So these NGOs, Oxfam, MSF, uh, all these other organizations are being devastated by the shutdowns. Uh, and so it's a real question as to how these kinds of uh, civil society organizations that represent really vulnerable groups are going to be able to come together. It, there's sort of some movement towards sort of working together, but I don't think that we've seen enough cooperation there yet. So that was Sridhar Venkatapuram, Kathleen Bikinski and Martin McKee talking to us about the importance of reliable data and good comparisons in the fight against covid That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back later in the week with more well-being, how to write a well-being prescription. We'll also have more talk evidence later in the week. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to give us a review there, it's really helpful to let us know what you think about the podcast. All of our COVID coverage is currently available for free at bmj.com slash coronavirus. It's all one word, bmj.com slash coronavirus. So until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.